work really hard to never compare yourself to another person. Your courage is your courage. My courage is my courage. My situation is my situation. Your situation is your situation. So your courage is, is going to be whatever it takes you to stretch to do the next thing that you, you can do. This is Series 5 of Brave New Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, and I welcome you to the Women's Impact Project, in which my guests share how they are positively impacting the world and the courage it takes to do so. If you're interested in making a difference by guesting on podcasts, you can find out how in my latest book, Dare to Share. This week's guest is Julie Anderson, otherwise known as the Brain Lady. She's studied natural health, psychology, psychoneuroimmunology, and the field of brain personality connection. With further specialism in depression, anxiety disorders, and brain function, she helps us to discover our own personal brain print and how to make the most of it. Welcome, Julie, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm doing beautiful. How are you today? It's really lovely to see you. I'm great. Uh, it's funny to be kind of turning the tables because I've been on two, your two podcasts. So now you're you're on ours. So that's very exciting. It's, I, I am so honored to be here with you today, Lou. I really appreciate the opportunity. So whereabouts in America are you? I am on the West Coast. So I'm in California. Uh, not what most people think of California. I'm not a Hollywood girl. I'm Northern California. So up in the mountains. Oh, lovely. So is that north of San Francisco then? Yes, northwest or northeast of San Francisco. Yes. We uh, we did a road trip up from San Francisco and came across this beautiful little town called Montesino. Oh, Mendocino. 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 Yeah, that's Mendocino. it. Mendocino. And yes. uh, they had a little tiny bookshop in there and uh, and they had my book. So I was very happy in the middle of nowhere. I love it. Yeah. I hope you got pictures. <laughs> yes, got pictures. And it's a, it's a gorgeous uh, artist community on the coast. Yes. where And a, it's got a house where Agatha Christie used to work and write. Yes. it's You know what? The California coast is just gorgeous. You have the sandy beaches in Southern California. But then you go up to Northern California, which is where Mendocino is. And it's just these beautiful, huge, rocky cliffs and just just gorgeous. And cute little towns. Very artsy little towns. You're right. Yeah, lovely. If I was to live anywhere else in the world, that would be my place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> Next so time thanks. you'll have to come to the mountains and visit. Yes, I definitely will. So thank you so much for being here. We've come out of two years of tricky times for everybody when people who have had mental illness, you know, found that that's got worse and those who didn't, weren't, predisposed to mental illness have also struggled in some way and, and experienced anxiety or fear or depression or sadness. And so I'd like you to explain, first of all, what our brain print is, and also from that, how we can use our brains to help us recover and build resilience for whatever's ahead of us. You know, I like to, what I when I refer to a brain print, I tell people it's just like your thumbprint, right? It is as unique as your fingerprints. It is this beautiful combination of what's coded in your DNA to, to pre, I mean, as soon as you're at conception, 
what's coded in your DNA, what are your strengths and your non-strengths in your brain, combined with every life experience that you have from that point moving forward. So that is really your brain print. It's who you are. It is, it is that brain personality connection. And it is very unique to you. No two brain prints are alike. And different individuals obviously are going to deal with the, the stressful situations in different ways. And for this last couple of years, it, it, it has really, it's challenged all of our mental health, right? <laughs> Everyone has been challenged to keep the positive outlook, especially because of the unknown. For so many months, it was, we didn't really know what was coming next. We didn't know what the numbers were going to be. We didn't know what the vaccinations were going to come out. We didn't know if the vaccinations were going to be work. We didn't know if we wanted to take the vaccinations. There were just so many unknowns. And it's the unknowns that can cause a lot of that stress. And then when you combine that with the isolation, uh, we are, I, I like to tell people we're herd animals, like human beings are herd animals. We need people. Even our introverts in society, they don't need a lot of people, but they still need people. So that it, it strained the mental health for a, for a lot of individuals. What we can do to help build resistance for the future is look back at the positives of what we learned and how we survived and how we can utilize that information to move forward, right? There's never, there's always a way that you can find some, um, some silver lining, if you will. And I, I, I use that term loosely, but we can look and go, okay, what is within our control? We learned what was in our control and what was out of our control. And when you stress over things that are out of your control, that's when you're, you're burning emotional energy that is, is not good. Right, because we can't control everything, so we have to focus on what we can control. What can we do to make our circumstances or the circumstances of our loved ones and friends, the people that we have contact with, the best? And really work at telling our brain. Sometimes we have to have those internal conversations with ourselves, like literally tell our brain, "This is out of my control, so I am not going to stress on it. I am going to work at handling this." And not focusing on the things that I cannot control, but rather put my energy and my thoughts into the things that I can control. And the more you train, you can train your brain to do this in every little situation in your life, every day, you know, everything that comes up. If you're driving in the car, down the motorway, right, and there's angry people, right, you can only control you. So train yourself in every aspect of every day to focus on what you can control and not focus on what you can't. Because when you're focusing on what you can't, you get in this downward spiral of stress and then the amygdala takes over and then you get the whole flesh of, you know, these stress hormones, which we don't want. But we build that resistant resilience by saying, okay, what can I control? And then work on making that or controlling that however we need to control it. And keeping our attention on that as opposed to putting our attention to the things that are out of our hands. So I don't know if you know the work of Byron Katie, but I'm I'm sort of studying her at the moment. And it's it's kind of very similar to what you've described, although it sort of couches it in with different terminology. 
but what she she tries to get you to do is think about exactly what you're saying is what what is in your control and what you know to be true and that all of the things that might be um in our imagination or projection or memory or false beliefs all of those things that are either in our past therefore not now or right. in the future therefore not now or what we're projecting to be in somebody else's head what they might be thinking which then makes us feel stressed because we're thinking that they might be worrying about us or thinking something bad about us and actually constantly just bringing it back to what do we know in this moment that we can see is as true as we can possibly believe it to be so so how does that actually work then well, it's it you really described it, right? So let's say let's take for example since we brought up the last couple of years, right? Let's let's just look at that. One of the big controversies and I'm not saying that I'm taking a stand one way or the other, everybody has their own opinion, I'm not expressing mine. I'm just simply using it as an example. One of the challenges was once we were getting back in public, some people were pro mask, some people were anti mask. Right. Some. And so you had this huge divide and people were arguing about it. And there was all this tension when in reality, I personally could not control what anyone around me did. All I could control was whether or not I wore a mask, what decisions I made, how well I sanitized or didn't sanitize or whatever. That's all I could control was myself. So stressing about the people walking into public and stressing about people who might have been in public that weren't wearing masks, it was a waste of my mental energy because there was nothing I could do about it, right? And that's that's where I think we all get, and I have to constantly remind myself this too, right? We all get into this thing where we're like, why did they do that? Why? That's not right. That's that. That's not us, right? All we can do is focus on on us in any given point in time. And oftentimes when we get that agitation and we start to feel our stomach just start to churn and the stress is just going, a really great thing to do is take that deep breath in through the nose, out through the nose, <laughs> take a nice deep breath, open up the prefrontal cortex and, and go, what is this situation? What do I have control over? And then be happy and content with controlling my actions and really not worrying about the the fact that that's not my monkey's not my circus, right? These other things that are happening that I can't control. So every bit of energy that I put into something I can't control is a total and complete waste. And quite frankly, I don't want to waste my brain energy. I like keeping it to myself. <laughs> and so this it's a very evolved way of thinking and being and and existing and obviously it helps you to enjoy your life in a way that you might not be able to if you weren't if you weren't so able to see to have that perspective i wonder as a child were you what was your brain print like and and how did you how were you growing up in terms of how you thought about things and saw the world and and your immediate environment I, I think I came out the shoot positive, like <laughs> just literally my mother used to call me and I don't know how many remember because this is really dating myself. Um, she used to call me her Pollyanna because I was always happy and positive and tried to make everybody happy. And that's just that's just kind of the way I was. 
and my life growing up was not that great. And I'm not saying that there weren't moments in time in the history where I experienced a depression. Um, but for the most part, you know, my, my dad, just a real quick capsule. My dad was an abusive alcoholic and it, I mean, he wound up by the time I was nine, uh, no, he was, he was incarcerated for manufacturing methamphetamines when I was 20. Like it was a bad, bad situation, but I learned early on. I remember very specifically, I was 12 years old. It was a camping trip when we went fishing and I won't go into the length of the story, but it was in that moment the way he treated me, I realized I do not need this man's approval to be a good person. I'm okay. I'm not a bad person. And I remember that very, very clearly, that entire scene very, very clearly when I just really realized, look, I can't, I can't rely on his approval to make me happy, right? I'm an okay person. I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. So I, I think I just always had that very um, positive outlook. And even as I said, this was, I was 12 years old. So even even at that very critical, you know, hitting puberty time, I was still able to just go, you know what? That's him. That's his opinion. That's the way he is. At that time, I had no clue about brain function, but that's what I was I was doing was just letting go of that, knowing I can't control him. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to be me. And so if that was, that came more naturally to you. And for me, I've had to work very hard at, at learning how to, to be more positive and, and to put more of a positive spin on, on things. And then more recently, I've come across this term toxic positivity. And, and so that's kind of thrown me into a bit of a spin. So uh, what does that mean? And, and how are people turning what what I thought was trying just trying to sort of get out of a bad place to help myself in, how does that become something that's toxic that really happens when you when it becomes so much when when you're so focused I shouldn't say focused on the positive when you're too when you're disconnected from reality right when it becomes something where you still have to, we still have day-to-day -day challenges that we have to actually address and work our, you know, work through. That's always going to be there. You don't want to live in a euphoric place in your brain where everything is unicorns and rainbows because everything isn't, right? You have to, there are challenges that come up that you have to engage the brain power to address. There are relationships that you have to communicate and you have to relate with. And you can't always just always look at that. You have to, that's, that's having tunnel vision, just the same as it would be having tunnel vision on the negative side. You could have tunnel vision on the positive side. So you have to be, you have to be balanced um, looking for, yes, you want to look for the positives and you want to always try to look at the things you can control versus the things you can't control. But you have to accept that there are some things, you know, everything isn't always perfect. So I think that's where that term comes in is if you're not, you're not accepting reality and dealing with reality because you're always in this, this bubble. And so when you, when you were the age of 18, you were in a car accident and 
you were injured and and then you were under the um, care of a chiropractor and it turns out that he was a sexual predator so with some as somebody that was that would see the best in uh, I don't know best in life I don't know whether you'd see the best in people but but you have a positive outlook how did you deal with something that was so traumatic to you and invasive to your to your psyche and to your body well I'm gonna say it did knock me off it knocked me off my feet for a while I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say oh I was just bounced back I was just fine no I went through a good couple of years where I had to deal with managing the reality and the emotions that came along with that and dealing with as a victim you know dealing with the sense of of guilt that you deal with. So it, it took time. It took time. And I think that is something that is so important that every person who has experienced something in that realm, any violation of any type, is don't ever compare yourself or be cautious to, to not compare yourself to other individuals because every brain has to heal in their own way and every brain has to work through the emotions. You can't just say, oh, well, this person bounced back, so I'm just going to suppress my emotions and I'm just not going to deal with it. You can't do that. You have to experience. Your your brain has to go through the healing process. And it did. It took a couple of years. I, I still had a fairly positive day-to-day life. But when I was alone, I went through the depression. I went through the struggle of seeing the positive and just getting to that point eventually where it was like, like I said, it was right about two years, right in that, that time period. And, and when, before I was able to really start going, okay, this too shall pass, right? This isn't going to kill me. I'm still here. I'm still going again. I cannot control this other person. We took, we did the reporting to try to protect anybody else from, from, you know, falling victim, but past that, it was it was out of my control, and what's out of your control, you have to let go of, and as that does does take time. But the more you can continue to tell yourself that and understand, you you focus on you, you focus on your health, you focus on your brain, your brain health. That is what will help helped me to eventually work my way through that. So I'm not going to say it didn't knock me down; it knocked me down. <laughs> And what but, tools did you use and, and what did you know to use or what did you learn to use to help you get through that period? Well, I'm a huge believer in God. <laughs> so a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer, Bible reading, and and really, honestly, just that positive self-talk, getting myself to the point where it was like, he's not worth it. He's not worth expending my precious energy, my precious life on worrying about him because every day that I let him and that experience control me and my emotions, I was still in that victim situation, even though he didn't care. He was on with his life. He was on with his family. He, I was a a memory in his past, right? So once you get just constantly reinforcing this to my brain over and over and over again, and just remembering that I want to be happy and it's in my control to be happy. 
And that's one of the things that you just have to, you, it, it takes work. It takes that constant self-talk that's on the, that works your way through those emotions, but not wanting to continue to be controlled by someone else. I'm in control of my emotions and my feelings. What then took you on the road to becoming the, the brain lady? <laughs> well, I was always fascinated. It started in my teens. I was fascinated with natural health, right? So I was always reading articles and books. I'm a huge, huge, huge reader. Uh, and so we then I got, you know, my late teens, I was really looking into natural health. Then I got married and had my three kids. So that kind of during my 20s, I was kind of, that's where my focus was, was on my family. And then once I started schooling them at home and became their teacher, I was like, I want to go back to school too. So I started studying in the field of natural health. And one of the required courses was psychoneuroimmunology, which is this big, long word that just means the connection between your thoughts in your mind, how that affects the chemistry in your brain, and then how that affects the immune system to the positive or the negative. And I became fascinated with what science could show you, literal measuring of white blood cells in the body based on or production in the spleen, or, you know, all these different things, they could measure that based on what was going in on in your mind, right? And it was interesting to me that I have four sisters, I'm one of five, and out of all of my sisters, I was physically the healthiest. Physically, I didn't have many health problems. And yet by this time in the life of all of my sisters, all of them had health problems. And I tended to be that Pollyanna. I was that positive person. So I was constantly thinking. So this just started, I started, you know, connecting the dots going, wait a minute, does this have anything to do with the reason why I'm the healthiest in the family? Could this be connected to psychoneuroimmunology? And then I just became fascinated with the brain and went down the, the road of, cons of anything and everything I could do to educate myself on the brain and how neuroscience helps us to understand who we are as people, as well as how we can manage our own health, how we can improve our health through the power of our thought process and, and understanding what goes on in the brain. So that was just, and, and it's been ever since 30 years later, I'm just still reading. I bought new two new books yesterday. <laughs> well, so when um, you were learning about this, um, I was, uh, however many decades ago that was, I was doing a series which I've we've talked about before um, on on people who were dying, and we were following uh, twelve people who had um, had their prognosis of six months that they had left to live. And in the process of filming, we found that they were actually living longer. And they talked about you know wanting to you know be able to watch the film when it came out and we were sort of interested and curious about this. And, and we talked to the doctors and they said, well, you need to talk to a psycho neuroimmunologist. And in this country, I think we only had one at the time. And uh, so we talked to him and he, and he actually became an interviewee. And uh, we ended up having two extra episodes to the series because we wanted to know what um, helped people live longer. And he said, having to, something to live for. And the series was living proof of that, that, you know, where they, the doctors had predicted that these people would only live for six months, they ended up living for three years. 
and you know and it you know it could have been that um it was the fact that you know we were all there we were interested it was a community they were being able to tell their stories they felt like they had something that they were being that their experience was useful that they were sharing their experience and they they felt that they were leaving a legacy and so all of these things were sort of um very it was very very early days and there wasn't so much evidence then as there is now so from your perspective how has it changed from something that people instinctively felt and this is kind of goes back thousands of years the the idea that the of the brain uh, of the brain body connection and mm-hmm. how intimately they're linked and that one um, affects the other and that now there is the science to prove that that is so that is the case so how does that change how you work with people in the way that i work with individuals it it it's like every new there's just so much material and every new study just gives us more insight so it helps me uh, greater points of reference right more information that i can more validation more studies that i can say to individuals like this is this was the study this was the result this is what they did and this is how it worked or here's the things that they found didn't work and i think for ind- i think what i am finding especially when i'm out doing my keynotes or whatever is individuals are fascinated by the facts they're fascinated by the science they're fascinated by you know i remember growing up being told or hearing somewhere you know if you worry too much you're going to make yourself sick and there was no at that time as a child growing up i had no idea that there was science behind it so i'm not sure that how well it stuck when it stuck was when i knew the science and i think that's what's helping people is every new every new research project that comes out every new study on longevity or on brain health that comes out i'm able to say look this is the reason why you need to do it it's not just me giving you advice it's me saying look at the facts, look at the research, look at the results that these people had. This is why you need to do this. And it just gives a it just gives a foundation that I think is more solid than just me giving you advice, right? I'm able to refer back to all of these studies. And like you in interviewing the psychoneuroimmunologist, he was able to say this is what we've seen through these studies. And so this is why it works. And now they're actually able to scan the brain when you're processing cognitive thoughts and measure. It's so fascinating. Measure the the neurochemistry, the reactions, what parts of the brain's fire brain fires, what parts of the brain shuts down. And so when it when you're able to do that, then you can say, oh, okay, you start to visualize, oh no, I'm worrying. I'm, I I can't, I can't come up with an answer. I'm stressed out. Oh, well, I can't come up with an answer because right now the frontal cortex of my brain is dead, right? There's no activity there. So I have to do something to get the activity back because I got to calm my amygdala and I have to work through this. So once you know the science, then you really understand the validity in the process. So let's take, say, sleep as an example. So this was, you know, it used to be that they'd say, well, people would say, or your parents would say, well, you know, you've got to get a good night's sleep first, school tomorrow, whatever. Um, And now they're saying it's absolutely critical that you get a decent night's sleep for your brain health and for your bodily health. So Mm -hmm. what's, what's the science behind that? 
Oh, there have been so many, so many sleep studies. So I like to tell people basically what goes on. You've heard for a long time that the brain stays awake while you're asleep, right? The brain is incredibly active while you are sleeping. And when they scan the brain, when someone primarily in the REM sleep, right? Primarily in that deeper sleep, the brain is so hyperactive at that point in time. It's firing. It's, it's, I tell people that's like when your brain is going through, it's an entire defrag system, right? The disc cleanup and the defrag on your computers. That's what your brain's doing at that time. It's processing all of those little bits of information that you, that it absorbed during the day because there's billions of bits of information that absorbed during the day. It's deciding what's important to keep, what's not important and to get rid of. It's also, this is when it's cleaning itself. This is when it's literally detoxing is during your sleep periods. And they can watch all of this on these brain scans. So if you're not sleeping, right, it's going to damage your memory. You're going to have memory problems because that means your brain didn't get the the opportunity to make all the memory circuit connections it needed to make. You're not you're not going to be as healthy. Your brain's not going to be as clean, right, as flushed as it, it literally clean from toxins as it would be if you didn't get the amount of sleep. So it has so much more to do with just, oh, I'm tired and I can't focus. Literally, your brain health is being affected because this science is showing what takes place in sleep is so vitally important for your brain to function at its peak. So now we have the science to back up, you know, why you need to sleep. And interestingly enough, at side point... (laughs) For you mentioned, you know, growing up, you you have to go to school tomorrow. You know, your parents would tell you this. Teenagers especially need later morning sleep. For some reason, their circadian cycle is different than an adult. It just has to do with all those hormones and all of that stuff. And they, if they have to wake up super early, their brains, their brains don't get enough of the sleep, which makes it harder to concentrate. So in in some countries, I know they're working at talking about starting school for high school a little bit later, or at least doing the um, non-academic, you know, the non-heavy thought things first thing in the morning is a, is a great, it's a great side point. We need to do more research and more science on that. We talk about the brain almost as if it's a kind of a separate entity to the rest of our body, but, but actually our whole body is is one system so you know there's there's been more and more emphasis on kind of whole lifestyle approaches with diet and exercise and sleep and breathing and all of these things and and so from where from from your perspective what's the best way to to look after our brain as part of its whole system oh there's there's so many facets um first and foremost is is manage the thought process. You know, realize that every single thought I tell people, I tell my clients all the time, your brain listens to everything that you are thinking in your mind. So you've got to be careful what you're telling it, right? You may have positive sayings all over your house. You may audibly say things or recount your, you know, your affirmations or things like that. But if your internal dialogue is saying something negative. That's what your brain is paying the most attention to. So you've got to manage your internal thoughts, right? You've got to manage that. You need to manage literally 
your physical health, um, good eating habits, uh, taking, there's a study after study that shows certain things like almonds, healthy fats, um, you know, berries, dark green, dark red color, you know, your darker, brighter colored berries, you know, those are the things that are good for you. So do that, get physical exercise. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go spend two hours in the gym, but 30 minutes of cardiovascular every day, that is a non-negotiable for me because those, these are the things getting oxygenate that helps to detox the brain. Like these are all things that we can do to help our body or help our brain because we are all connected and everything, everything you think, everything you eat, uh, how you care for your digestive system, all of that is very critically connected to who we are as a human being from head to toe. So you're right. It's all very connected and we need to take care of our brain and then our brain is going to take care of us. If we're not taking care of our brain, then our brain's going to (laughs) lose. It's going to lose it and it's not going to control our body the way it should. And then, you know, it's like this, this delicate balance that you want to, that you want to realize that they are very connected. So care for it and it will care for you. And with the, the big AI brain on the horizon being built as we speak, getting more and more powerful, how do we, how, what's your vision for the future of our own brains? Oh, that's such a, you know, it's funny because my oldest son who gets very philosophical, we've had conversations about this. Personally, I think the dynamic creation of the human brain will never, ever, in my opinion, (laughs) be duplicated. You know, so you can have the, you can create the most amazing computer and even to the point where it's learning, right? The brains, but you can't, you can't duplicate the DNA code. You, there's just no way to do that. There's, there's no way. Um, so I just don't see there ever being anything that's going to outshine the human brain and the diversity of the human brain, right? Because your brain is so unique to you and my brain is so unique to me. And AI brains aren't necessarily going to have that same unique like the way you and I can experience the exact same thing. We can be sitting at the exact same table in the exact same room and experience, have the exact same thing happen around us. But the way your brain processes it and the way my brain processes it are going to be completely different. And I don't ever see a computer, an artificial intelligence to ever be able to, to match that. And so you talk about being able to control our thoughts and and manage our thoughts around how we think and then and therefore how we feel how do you define courage in the light of so many of us having to try and manage our brain in that way how do i define courage you know courage is going, your courage is going to be a little different than mine because your brain's a little different than mine, right? The things that we, it, it, I don't think it can be put into one specific uh, definition, right? Because the way that we express it in our life for some individuals out there because of their brain makeup due to their life experience, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to just get up and get going every morning. Right. So for them, the definition of courage 
is just progress. It's just putting your feet on the ground and making it through every day. Because there is a huge reality in mental health as you started the, the, the program out. And the chemical balance is so delicate in the brain. And because everybody's brain is so unique, there are individuals out here that really struggle to have the balance in the brain to be happy, to be positive. And so for them, courage, the definition of courage for them is just simply making it through the day and maybe smiling along the way, right? For someone like me, courage might be a little bit more aggressive, right? <laughs> it's getting out of my comfort zone. It's going and doing something new. It's getting a new degree. It's getting a new, a new client. It's, you know, it's really, it, it's going to be different for each individual person because each individual person is, their brain is so unique. So in self-reflecting, every individual needs to keep that in mind. Work really hard to never compare yourself to another person. Your courage is your courage. My courage is my courage. My situation is my situation. Your situation is your situation. So your courage is, is going to be whatever it takes you to stretch to do the next thing that you, you can do. Thank you so much for taking us on a deep dive into our brains, how they can work for us and not against us. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks for being the most awesome brain lady. Oh, thank you so much, Lou, for having me on the program today. I love the new connection that I have across the pond. And I am very honored that you had me on as one of your guests. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you so much, Julie, for showing us how we can make the most of our own unique brain personalities no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. You can find out more about Julie's work on www.brainladiespeaker.com. Listen to her two podcasts, The Brain Lady Speaks and Women Entrepreneurs Extraordinaire and follow her on LinkedIn at Brain Lady Julie. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.